It's my privilege to introduce our guest speaker today, Pastor Brian Moore. He grew up in Georgia, where he met his wife Megan there. Together they have four beautiful children, and they both received their call to missions on their trips to the Philippines. A few years ago, in 2018, they moved to Berlin, Germany to work with atheists and refugees and to plan a church. They plan on returning to Germany next year, May 2022, to pioneer new work for the gospel. I met Pastor Brian a few years back in the East Coast, and he was sharing about his plans, his calling, his preparations for ministry in Germany. And it's been amazing seeing how God has been using him and his family overseas for gospel ministry. I'm so glad that you could join us here at Christ Central today. Please join me in welcoming Pastor Brian Moore. Thank you. And good morning. Thank you so much for having me here. I really wish I had the time to actually detail for you the whole story of how I ever got connected to Central Church in Southern California. And suffice it to say this morning, though, it truly is a work of the Lord. Uh, only in the kingdom do these things happen. My relationship with Pastor Daniel when he was in Pittsburgh, and now that extending unto you guys here. And I just laugh and smile at the Lord's works of bringing me here to be with you, sharing this Sunday worship with you, and the true joy it really is, and the impossibility it would have been without the Lord's work. Um, if you have time after the service, I would love to tell you about the long story of how I got here. But again, suffice it to say that the Lord is good. And I want to also say with that, thank you very, very much for your support. Though having never met you, your church has prayed for our family. You received a video about some of our work in Berlin. I know very much so that you have been praying because I believe that things in Berlin that have happened would not happen without the prayers of his people. Furthermore, you guys have financially supported us, and that keeps us on the field and keeps us focused on the church there. And so for those reasons and many, many more, thank you for having me here today. Thank you for your work with us in Berlin and for your care for my family. So with that, this morning we're going to be speaking from Acts 17. We're going to be doing the virtually the second half of the chapter. And in preparation for today, your church asked me to speak about what it's like to share my faith in a post-Christian environment. And I got to thinking about that and what that would mean. And I think the Lord has a great word for both myself and all of us here this morning. To begin, I want to start with this idea of what it's like to come back from another country. Some of you may have lived abroad, some of you may have not, but one of the first questions we almost always get, we live in Georgia in the Atlanta area, and one of the first questions we've gotten since we've been back by virtually everybody is, what's it like? What's it like to be back? You know, you've been there in Germany for three years. We've made one or two small, short, really short visits back, but what's it like to actually be back and living in the U.S. just for this period of time? And I have to admit, it's a really hard question to answer because in one sense, everything's changed. Sure, it's only been three years, but you guys can imagine if you were to leave here for three years and come back, a lot will have changed, right? Streets have changed, new apartment buildings or houses have gone up, new neighborhoods, new stores, new restaurants, new everything. The people have changed. Wonderful things have happened in people's lives. They've been married or they've had children 
or they've been healed of disease, or they've had some other great, wonderful thing happen to them. Hard things have happened to people. They've moved away. They've passed away, or they've received an illness or some other kind of misery. People change. And so it really is entirely fair to say that. Coming back to our hometown three years later, everything's changed. However, on the other hand, it's also fair to say that nothing's changed. There's nothing new going on in Flowery Branch, Georgia. That may surprise you, but there's nothing new. There's this sense of home that you can't replace. Knowing our way around, knowing that every time we go and speak to a local, though the Georgia accent can be thick, we will understand what they're saying, and we'll be able to communicate perfectly. Knowing the language and the vernacular, the families and the people that make our friends and our church, knowing just everything there is to know, And realizing that none of that has changed. We smile and just enjoy the consistency. We can exhale at the normality. And so on the surface, everything's changed, but yet nothing has actually changed. And it's that idea with which I want us to approach the Lord's word today. Because in many ways, sharing our faith is completely different in 2021. Particularly from first century Athens. What really do we have in common with those people. But, Lord willing, I think we'll all see nothing has changed. There are wonderful principles from which we can take from the text today, applying in our everyday lives, in order to glorify the Lord and share our faith with our neighbors and friends. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, the essential character of life in this world does not change. My prayers will see that today. I'm going to read our text, we're going to pray, and then see what the Lord has. This morning we'll be in Acts 17, verse 16, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. This is the word of the Lord. Now, while Paul, while he was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming? For you're bringing some strange things to our ears and we want to know what these things mean. Now all of the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So Paul, in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples built with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, 
if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and exist. As even some of our own poets have said, for we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think of the divine nature, that it is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art or the thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Domerus and others with them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your word. Truth be told, we could close the book and we could go home be satisfied having heard from you. This is enough. That being said, Lord, we do pray that as we consider this text, as we consider what you, by your Spirit, are speaking to us this morning, I pray that you would convict each and every one of us in the areas that we need conviction. Prick our hearts with the sword. Move us. Give us an energy, a liveliness. Give us a pain, whatever it takes to move us. Convict us of our sin, of our idleness, and any other areas in which we need to hear from you. Lord, I also pray that you would encourage us, each and every one of us, Lord. Give us that life. Give us that energy. Give us the joy. Give us the grace to walk in the ways which you've set before us and to enjoy you forever as you've called us to do. But Lord, in all things, I pray, whatever happens among us this morning, may you be glorified by this time together. And I ask this in your name. Amen. And so, as we've said, this is the third historical account in Acts 17. It is the true story of Paul's unexpected time in Athens. And as he is walking around observing the city, uh, it becomes painfully obvious that something is happening in Athens, something that's just driving him crazy. The word provocation there is just boiling his blood. And what I want to start with this morning is we're going to do, really, there's so much in this text to, to go through and to talk about, and I wish we had a whole series to think through it together. But I want to give you a big picture overview, principles of evangelism in a post-Christian environment, if you will. And what I hope to encourage you, what I think the Lord is speaking to all of us this morning is that there is nothing new about the state of man, the state of people, and therefore there's nothing new about what our response to that should be. And I hope to you that's a relief, that's an encouragement. Because so much is made, like Paul is getting so frustrated, so much is made about culture and the day-to-day life of people and how you contextualize the gospel and how you do these things. Books and volumes are written on this. And these are good. I don't mean to cast any rocks. But I hope, and I really truly believe this morning, that there's a simplicity to sharing the gospel. There's a simplicity, if you will, to our condition and a simplicity to sharing the gospel. And I hope that that simplicity is a breath of fresh air and an encouragement and an energy to go and to reach those whom the Lord has put in your path. And so first, I want us to see that there is nothing new 
about the condition of man. What I'm going to do here is I don't want to put things in your minds. I don't want to, um, how to say, I don't want to go ahead and give you the ideas. I want you to see what Paul encounters, and let's just see if you may encounter this in your everyday life. So we're going to walk through verses 16 through 23 to do that. Beginning in verse 16. Now, Paul was waiting for them in Athens. He was provoked. He was upset. With it, and as he observed the city full of idols. So let's start there. A city full of idols. How much does first century Athens have in common with 21st century Los Angeles? Would you say that Los Angeles is a city full of idols? To be sure, modern society has absolutely exercised or psychologized the supernatural out of existence. And yet, I ask you, would you say your city is less full of idols than Athens? You may not have temples and statues dedicated to Zeus or Minerva or Ares, but do you have other idols that are clearly, visibly broadcast across the city? Perhaps. Not only is it full of idols, or not only does it have idols, but it's full of idols. There's an excessiveness to it. It was said of ancient Athens that there were more idols in Athens than in all of Greece combined. And it was easier to meet a new God in Athens than a new person. Does that excessive nature of idolatry also fill the streets of our neighborhoods here? Or would you say it's much less, it's much more hidden? Maybe it's hidden internally, perhaps not externally. Moving on, so he was reasoning in the synagogues and in the marketplace, and he encounters the Epicureans and the Stoics. I ask you, have you ever met an Epicurean or a Stoic? I highly doubt any of you here would ever say, oh yes, I've met a follower of Epicurus. That's just not in existence anymore, right? We don't meet these types of people anymore. Or do we? What did the Epicureans believe? An Epicurean believed that Life after death was non-existent. Death was the end. There was no soul. It was annihilated. And the person himself, or him or herself, was buried and gone. Death was the end. And so, the only right, rational, good response to life was to do two things. Negatively, was to avoid all entangling emotions and potential difficulties. Don't give yourself any hopes and dreams for your future. Because most certainly, as many of us are painfully aware, those things end in hurt and in disappointment. Don't think past today. Think about now. And also, don't get yourself entangled with other people, with family or with marriage or with children or any of these things. Because people, as many of us are painfully aware, hurt us and disappoint us. And so the Epicurean said, well, why would I waste my time with that? Sure, people are great. I want to do things with them, spend time with them, but I'm not going to get too involved because it's too painful. Positively, though, what did the Epicureans do? Well, they pursued pleasure ad nauseum. Any and everything they can do today, eat, drink, and be merry, that's what they did. So let me ask you this. Knowing that now, have you ever met an Epicurean? Do they still exist in the streets of L.A. today? What about Stoics? Maybe you say, okay, well, yeah, I can see that, but I don't know if I've ever met a Stoic. What was, who were the Stoics? Again, not to belabor this, but 
Stoics were people who basically believed that life was totally predestined. There was a, it was totally fatalistic. You were, on path, you were on a path that destiny set for you, and there was nothing you could do about it. <clears throat> and so <clears throat> to get through life successfully, one had to show courage. One had to show grit. One had to have a stick to it itness. If you've ever read Ernest Hemingway, for example, his tragic heroes are always the epitome of stoicism. The whole universe may be piled against them, ready to just unleash, and they're going to stand their ground, and they are not going to back down. Everybody knows the end. The end is still death. But the way you're a successful stoic is that you end life on your feet. You brace your shoulders, tighten your lip, exercise an iron will, and you refuse to be defeated. Now I ask you again, have you met a Stoic? Or have you heard Stoicism or Epicureanism advertised on TV or demonstrated in movies or stories or other people's lives? Friends, these things were born before Jesus, and they still persist today. I tell you, there's nothing new in the condition of men. Moving on, Paul encounters these people and they begin to question him. What would this idle babbler wish to say? He seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities. Have you ever shared your faith and encountered this kind of opposition? I was in Berlin in a language class and I was asked to present the difference between denominations. I have to be completely plain with you. I was allowed to present any topic I wanted and not wanting to step on toes and being a little too careful to my shame, I was not going to choose a Christian topic. But my teacher, knowing I was a pastor, said, oh, we would really love to hear about something about this. We've never met a Christian, and so we would love to hear maybe the differences and why there's so many different types of churches. And so what I presented was, first and foremost, the gospel, because I wanted my class to know that, yeah, okay, there's a lot of different churches And there's a lot of important differences. However, there is a unity, a cohesiveness to us as the body of Christ. And this is the most important thing that you hear. And in Flowery Branch, Georgia, as you may well imagine, you don't get a lot of pushback to that. But in Berlin, Germany, the atheist capital of Europe, some people had some things to say about that. One woman, in her anger, slammed her fists on the table and told me that Jesus was just a man. There was nothing special about him and what had been mythologized about him. And I needed to find a new line of work. If people have not changed since first century Athens, friends, you also will encounter these people inevitably when you share your faith. People will call you names. People will laugh at you for being silly. People will be angry. They will not want to hear the good news. Nothing is new in the 21st century. So they brought him to the Areopagus, and in verse 21 it says, Now the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling and hearing something new. Let me ask you this as well. And I'm belaboring this on purpose. I really want us to see the parallels, the similarity, how nothing has really changed. Let me ask you, does that resonate with L.A. in 2021? Sitting and spending our time in nothing else other than telling and hearing something new. Does that ring a bell? Does that resonate with you? 
whether it's social media posts or what the latest person placed online, whether it's the newest YouTube video to drop or podcast, whether it's the news or your sports team, whether it's just the next iPhone. There's endless examples of this very thing happening in L.A. in 2021, in Berlin 2021. Not only that, notice the emphasis here. There's a lot of talking, but there's not a lot of doing. How much do we also see that in our everyday lives? Tons of talking, tons of energy, tons of excitement dedicated to these big general ideas and very little action. We, there is nothing new among the condition of men. So Paul goes to the Areopagus and he says, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. And while I was passing through and examining your objects of worship, and he's going to go on, but I want to stop there for a minute. I was amazed by that, and I, would, I wonder how much this resonates with you, too. Like I said, Berlin is considered the, athe- the atheist capital of Europe. I find that statistic a little silly because we're talking about one or two percentage points from a vast majority of cities. I mean, the idea is if I'm 5'11 and someone's 6'4, they're closer to the sun. It's just kind of silly. Atheists are spread uh, ad- in every city and every country throughout Western Europe. And it's growing. It's the second fastest religion in the United States that's growing. And I say religion on purpose because I was amazed at how religious atheism actually is. One of the things that really blew my mind and I had to investigate when we first moved there was we would go to the department store to Woolworth. They're very popular there. And every single Woolworth I went to, there would be a whole section on decorative Buddha statues in Berlin, Germany. And so I began to wonder, okay, well, where is this huge Buddhist population? I had no idea that they would be here. Uh, This is potentially new territory for us to start investigating for church planning. And I just began to ask more and more locals. And as I asked people, I started to also see that, well, a lot of Germans I meet with, they have them in their apartment. And there'll be statues outside of a whole apartment complexes dedicated to Buddha or some other kind of Eastern mystical religion. And as I inquired and got more and more answers, what I discovered was the idea of Buddhism was a complete silly myth to these people. But the idea of Buddha's good energy and the good spirits that he may bring and just the feelings of warmth, all these kind of vague general descriptions from friends in Germany, that his statue was just a religious idol to these people. They didn't have any idea. Any, they had no idea of the tenets or concepts of Buddhism. They just liked the good energy. It was superstition, and it was a lie. But Paul rightly calls these people very religious, and in their case, it's obvious. There's statues and temples to gods everywhere. In our case, it's not always obvious. I really thought my first work in Berlin would be to convince people first of the supernatural and then later of Christianity. But I realized the supernatural is everywhere. One of the most effective ways that we share the gospel is by telling people that we're the same. They have a Lord, and they have a Savior. I have a Lord, and I have a Savior. Now, they might not use those terms, or they might not be immediately comfortable with those terms, but make no mistake, everybody, and I dare say everybody in the world, I don't want to be overly simplistic, but I really do think this cuts through a lot of the noise. Everyone has a Lord, and everyone has a Savior. Your Lord may be some philosophy, some science. It may be some political party or idea. It may be a person. It may be yourself. 
but somebody gets the final say in your life. That's a religious Lord. Not only that, everybody has a Savior, some means of redemption. It may be that you get to save the world through environmentalism, or you get to fix all of society's woes through some political activism. It may be that you get to make enough money to be free, or it may be that you just value your own autonomy and get to determine and add all sorts of meaning to your life, however you call, or by whatever, whatever means you call meaning. Whatever it is, they have a functional Savior. They have a functional way to give their life meaning. And I simply say to that, I have that too. I have the, my Lord and my Savior in Jesus Christ. And this putting of the world's idols into these religious terms, of putting atheism in religious terms, really gains a lot of traction with people. And I think it really cuts to the heart of the matter, which is this, that sin has caused all of us to either, excuse me, because of our simple hearts, we all find our worship in something else. Ecclesiastes, the writer tells us we, that eternity has been placed in our hearts. We all are made to worship. Sinfully, we find something else to worship. We find some other Lord. We find some way to make meaning. And only by the regenerative power of, of the Holy Spirit do we ever get on the right track. And it's because of this reality that we see that really all of these things are just religion. He goes on, and this is the last point that I want to sell this point home to you. Uh, he finds an altar with the inscription to an unknown God and says, what you worship in ignorance, ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Now we have to smile at the ultimate worldly wisdom here. The Athenians, in an effort to cover their base, ha- cover all of their bases, have said, okay, we have all of these gods. We have all of these, this pantheon of deities. But what if we missed one? What if we still haven't quite done enough? And what if that God's angry at us? And so in their wisdom, you can see it's, it's humble, it's clever, it's wise. They have built an altar to an unknown God just to make sure that everybody was covered. But what that betrays, I think, and this is where we can really speak to our modern friends' minds, is a doubt, a painful doubt that's placed somewhere deep in the back of their minds. Every single person I talk to in Berlin, every person I've talked to in Georgia when I worked at the church there, that was not walking with the Lord, ultimately and finally portrayed a sense of doubt. They don't want to believe. They want to cast off Christ. They want anything other than the Lord, but they still worry that he's real. They still have the sense of doubt that what if I'm wrong? And Paul rightly zeroes in on that and leads us to our second principle, which is if nothing is new about the state of man, then church, I suggest to you that nothing new should be given in our response. We need to present the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Paul does that with the whole, with verses 24 through 31, with this incredible statement about the Lord. And because of time, we are able to take and piece apart every single thing that he says. So I still want to keep it in the general terms for you. Paul here does not waver at all in presenting first and foremost the Lord as the Lord truly is. He says this, The God who made the world and all things in it, 
since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all people life, breath, and everything. He made one man from every nation to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God and, if perhaps, may grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. Even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Being then the children of God, and he continues. But I think we hear it here. Paul is not afraid of mentioning a single aspect about the true God. It's very trendy and very popular in 2021 to present parts of God, to hide pieces of the Bible, to maybe not emphasize sin and righteousness so much as we want to emphasize grace and goodness and love. And Paul here makes no, uh, he doesn't try to accommodate anybody. He presents the Lord, first of all, as just that, the Lord. He is the ruler. He is the authority. He is the king. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Whether people acknowledge it or not is another question, but God is the Lord. We do no favors to our neighbors and to our friends when we present him otherwise. He is the creator. He made the cosmos, the seen and the unseen world that we live and move in. He made man he gave man and woman their roles in this world, and he has ordained these things so. He is the ultimate creator, designer, and therefore authority of these things. Furthermore, he's presented as self-sufficient. Not only does God not live in the temples that have been made by the Athenians, nor is he inhabiting the statues that they formed by their hands, but rather the Athenians live in the world that God made. And they are the work of his hands. That is no less true today, friends. God does not need us. He is self-sufficient. He was perfectly full and happy and well-pleased before he made us. And only out of those things have we come. He doesn't need us to carry him, to see for him, to hear for him, to speak for him, to convince people of him. It is his work that he has called us into. In Isaiah 62, he says, For Zion's sake, I will not keep quiet. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not keep silent. Until her righteousness goes forth like brightness and salvation like a torch that is burning. God is at work. He has endlessly been at work. And he doesn't need us to do his job. He invites us into his job. He invites us and empowers us to be a part of this work for his name's sake and for the sanctification of his people. But make no mistakes, if it comes down to it, he is perfectly self-sufficient. He is not an idea. He is not created. He's the sustainer. Excuse me. It says that he gives to all mankind life, breath, and everything. I love that. Life, breath, and everything. There is not a single cell in our body that's alive without the Lord. Every breath that you've breathed in since we've been here is from the Lord. The thoughts in your mind all from the Lord. The things you possess, your clothes, your money, your materials, your friends, your family, everything is from the Lord. This is true for believers and non-believers. He has ordained our days, and there is yet, when there was not even one of them yet made, Psalm 139. He has known our name for all eternity, and he has numbered the hairs on our head. He knows us 
and he sustains us. He is the sovereign ruler. He's determined boundaries of countries, as we've seen here. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth and determine their appointed times. There is no government. There is no ruler. There is no authority. There is no idea that will go outside of the bounds of God's sovereignty. Not only that, he says that he is transcendent and near. He is neither absent nor distant. He is near to us all. And as the writer of Psalm 73 said, the nearness of God is our goodness. And that's what I want to tell our non-believing friends so many times too. God is not far from you. He's not removed. He's here. He's among us. He's right next to you. You only have to ask. You only have to turn and respond. And lastly, he says, he is our father. Paul makes that abundantly clear to the Athenians. And I think that's very important, as we said earlier, when we heard from Pastor Daniel. God is not just our king. He's not just our ruler. He's not just our authority. He's our father. See with what love the father has for us, that we would be called children of God, and so we are. The difference in a servant and a son is what happens at the end of the day. When servants perform their work, they can be in the father's house all day doing chores, doing tasks, doing everything that you can imagine. But at the end of the day, no matter how well they've served, they still have to go back to their home, to their place of residence. Sons and daughters, though, children of the father, no matter what they've done with their day, how well they've served or how poorly they've done, no matter what outcome they have at school, no matter how they've done in their job, no matter what kind of sins they have or haven't committed, if they're true children of the Father, there's always a place in the home for the children. Presenting God with, this, with his full realities as king, as Lord, as self-sufficient, as sustainer, as righteous, as perfect, we cannot shy away from any aspect of God. And I urge you, church, in 2021, don't hide any parts of who the Lord is. Give the whole truth to God's people and to the world. Secondly, if our principle is to present the truth, we have to be truthful about man's problem and the solution. That's what Paul does as he starts to round off his sermon. He says, therefore, having looked, overlooked times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere, all people everywhere should repent. Because he's fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all mankind by raising him from the dead. There's three parts to the problem and the solution. And the first is to repent. The problem that obviously is a result or is the, the cause of that is sin. All people have come, have fallen into sin. We know this truth. It's important to say it, especially into a listening world. We've all fallen into sin. And the first word of Jesus' public ministry was repent. I dare say God's first word to sinners in the garden was, where are you? And in many ways, those are the same. Where are you? Come back. Repentance, as we've already heard this morning as well, is, is confessing and mourning and hating our sin, but it's also a, a change of lifestyle, a 180 turn 
coming back to the Lord, casting off the old and putting on the new. And that's the word of the Lord. That's our word to the world. Repent. Isaiah 30 tells us that in repentance and in rest is our salvation. In quietness and trust is our strength. I assure you with the doubt and the, the rampant idolatry and these crazy ideas of how the world is organized, the world wants rest. And the way to receive that is the repentance and salvation. We offer that. We have the truth. Don't be afraid of the truth. Whether it's unpopular or whether it gets you in consequences, don't be afraid of the truth. He goes further into something that might prickle even more feathers, which is judgment. Truth be told, there is a day, as we saw in the, in the confession this morning, where we will be judged. And Paul makes this abundantly clear. If this can go one of two ways in Romans 4, among many other places. He says, Now to the one who works, his wages will... His wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. When we stand before the Lord, there's a choice. Do we want to stand on our own merits, or do we want to stand on the merits of Christ? How foolish, how lost, how silly of us would it be to say, I'll stand on my own merits. Because what would happen then at that point is that a, a film, if you will, of our life, not just the visual acts of what we've done, but the thoughts, the motivations, the intentions, the desires, all of these things would be broadcast. And it is on that that our eternal life would depend. And I assure you, not one will stand if that is the case. None of our neighbors will stand. We will not stand. But the second option is accept the merits of Christ. Like the, the Pharisee and the tax collector who were praying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. I have no good, but Christ is my goodness. That is our only solution, church. That has always been the solution, and that will continue to be the solution. There is no other cure. That is what we offer to the world. It is the only offer. It was the only thing we truly have to author. We can cut through the noise. We can cut through the complexity. We can cut through it all and get to the heart of the matter, which is there's a deadly problem. There's a pestilence in the world. We're all victims to it, and I have the cure. We don't make any friends. We don't help anybody by hiding that or reducing sin or marginalizing these realities because there is a great hope. It doesn't just end with, okay, you're righteous, be well, be well fed and go. But there is a resurrection. There's an ultimate victory. We will rise again in glory. Christ has defeated death. And as you saw, because of death, the Epicureans, the Stoics, they try to make sense of life. Other people are trying to make sense of life in any number of possible ways you can imagine. But the resurrection changes everything. It's been the stumbling block forever. Paul says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved by it, it is the power of salvation. The cross is the crux. The cross is the thing that changes everything. You're either on one side of the idea of it or another. 
But there will be a resurrection. And as the verse I was going to share, Pastor Daniel already shared, everything makes sense. Everything is redeemed. Everything is brought to its fullness in the cross. We can endure all things because we know they're a light, momentary affliction compared to the eternal weight of glory that's prepared for us. Paul's not saying that to a church that's just going through the motions that's got life easy. He's saying that to a church that is crushed but not destroyed, that is broken and persecuted, and people are dying weekly. And he still has the gall to say, yeah, but these are light momentary afflictions prepared for your, moment, prepared for your eternal weight of glory. He can say that, not superficially, but because he truly knows the power of the cross and the realities of the resurrection. That is what we offer the world. And so my urging to you is that if there's nothing new about people, then let there be nothing new in our response to those people. And may we be reminded of these truths for ourselves. If we're presenting the truth about God and we're presenting the truth about the problem and its cure, the last thing I want to end with is somewhat of a sober note, but the reality that we have to entrust the results to God. This section ends with, when some heard of the resurrection of the dead, they began to sneer. But others said, we'll hear you again concerning this. Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris. They give the real names here to show you that this is a, these were actual people that actually believed. And that will be important in a second. But there's really three reactions that people can have. They'll laugh at you, they'll call you names, and they'll ignore you. This will happen when you share your faith. There is nothing new about that. There will also be people that will frustrate you to no end because they'll continually put off the decision. Let me think about these things. Let me process these things. Let me have all the right answers first. And they may never come to Christ. I sat with an atheist, and we, I had shared the gospel many, many times, and they were weeping, crying, knowing that they should believe. A week later, they decided it wasn't for them. These things happen. We have to entrust the results to God because we also know that there will be some who believe. And what a glorious, wonderful thing it is. The Lord says when the lost are found, there's a celebration in heaven. There's, there's so much to say here. When it comes to family or it comes to people that we share with that either sneer at us or put off the decision, it can be painful. One of the things that our family always says to each other when our girls are, in particular, they're having a hard day or they're scared about something, especially before they go to sleep, is, do we trust God? God has provided all these things for us? The answer is yes. God has done all these things for us in Christ? Yes. And so can we trust him now? And the answer is yes. The reality is none of us deserve anything but the wretches and the suffering of hell. And so the fact that any of us are saved is a true, wonderful joy. And quite honestly, any tactic, anything that we may say, any conversation we may have is totally useless outside of the work of the Holy Spirit. That is the reality of sin. But praise be the Lord here, that as we see that there are some who believe. That should blow our minds. If we fully understand sin, we should never, 
ever expect someone to believe. But I tell you, friends, that God has always preserved his people, his remnant, then in the first century, and he is doing so now in the 21st century. And the joy is that we get to be a participant in that. It is my deep confidence in Berlin and in all of Germany, as well as in L.A. and California. Despite the appearances, despite the best efforts of Satan, the Lord has lost sheep that are still scattered among the streets and neighborhoods in which we reside. And he is going to call those people home. May we have the joy and the pleasure to be a part of that. But before that, let us even now take great joy in the simple fact that the Lord has called our name. May we never forget that though we have not changed, though we are no different than the Athenians by nature, we know the full truth of God, a blessing that we take for granted every day. We know the problem and its solution, the gospel. And we know that the results of our life are ultimately in the hands of the Lord. We may try and we may fail. You may share the gospel with every neighbor you've ever met, and you may never see a conversion, but you will stand in glory because of what Christ has done for you. Let's pray. Father, we do praise your holy name. We thank you for your goodness and your care. We thank you for your love. Lord, we praise you that your word has demonstrated for us that there is nothing new under the sun. And so, Father, in light of that, I pray that we would present you as you are. I pray that we would present the gospel in its fullness and that we would trust you with the, the return. Lord, you tell us that we, Paul has planted, Apollos watered, but you give the growth. We ask for growth this morning. We ask for receptive hearts in our neighborhoods to the gospel. But more importantly, and before all else, we ask for your glory in all these things. May your name be praised because of our time in the word this morning, and I ask this in your name. Amen.